this began to escalate very, very quickly. Um, so the numbers just began to to just multiply, and it got to the stage where, and it got to the stage where there was kind of around March, April time, staff were just having to have a bit of a cry and work in the middle of the corridor to just cope because it just got so stressful and just not knowing what the day was going to throw at you was horrendous. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. You are listening to People I Met on the Internet, the podcast which is about people I mostly, with a few exceptions, met on the internet. I'm your host, Stephen J. Reid. More about me at the end if you really want to know. Uh, but today I'm going to be talking to Chris Mackay, who's a mental health nurse based in Northern Ireland. Now, this conversation covers a wide range of topics. We're going to be talking to Chris about his work. He works specifically with people struggling with uh, opiate addictions. Uh, we're also going to talk about how he's been affected by the coronavirus pandemic, his thoughts on conspiracy theories, and photography. So yeah, uh, quite a wide mix here, and some of the sections are quite long. So just to give you a choice, if you check the show notes, I've put in what the what the time markers are for the, each section. So if you want to skip and just listen to one bit, that's up to you. But let's get into our conversation with Chris. Very important question I need to start with, and it's this. What color socks are you wearing, or are you wearing socks? Oh, uh, I am. And they're matching, for once. They're matching, uh, okay. That's a good, that's a good start. <laughs> they're blue hiking socks, because I'm preempting after this is over. I'm going to go for a little wander up a hill somewhere. Uh, I'm going for a run directly after this, so great minds. Yeah, I'm not much of a runner. Two miles is about as much as I can do at the minute. Hey, two, mile, two miles is pretty good. If you can run two miles, you can run a marathon. I've always said if you can get somebody to the point where they can run consistently for more, about 10 minutes, you could probably just, you know, just keep adding the time up. But anyway, enough about running. Chris, um, why don't you like really quickly just introduce yourself. Tell me where you're from and what you do. Just in a couple of sentences to start with. Okay, I'm Chris. Uh, I'm from Toronto. Uh, it's always good with the name. Uh, from Tyrone, uh, from a little village called Coke, or Coke, however you want to pronounce it. Coke, uh, near just, uh, yeah, and just where, where is where is Tyrone? Global audience here. <clears throat> ah, okay. Uh, Northern Ireland, in the middle of Northern Ireland, Mid Ulster. Slap bang in the middle. Yep. Apparently, Cookstown, the little town where I went to school, is geographically the centre of Northern Ireland. Ah, sausage town. <laughs> Probably should clarify that. <laughs> Cookstown is famous for its Cookstown sausages and it range is. of pork products. Um, my geography corridor in the school actually backed on to the pork factory. So ah. in the summer, yeah. um, that lovely wind would blow up uh-huh. through the windows. <laughs> See the smell of like cooks was it was that a good smell though? Because I worked I worked in a butcher's for four years and I've made sausages and I know that the smell isn't great during the manufacturing, but it's delicious during the cook- cooking. So which, which, which smell will you gain? Well, I don't eat meat. Ah, so that's definitely not, not good. So it's not, it's not a smell that I particularly enjoyed at the time, nor do I now when I drive into the town <laughs> and it wafts through the car vents. Um, wasn't a great experience. Geography and history were always pretty rough in the summer. It was stinking. Ah, uh, just the smell of 
warm pork and uh hold on this has got nothing to do with my first question at all okay we'll get away we'll get away. this is this is a, this is a different podcast entirely so okay well, let's get away from pork chris um tell me tell me a little bit about your job so um i'm a mental health nurse um i spent a little bit of time working i trained and worked in glasgow yeah and then when i moved home i got a job with the addiction service so yeah. working with people you know, with drugs and alcohol addictions and okay. I went on to specialise a wee bit more and I, I now work within a team that specifically helps people with heroin addiction. So people who want to recover from that lifestyle. Yeah. Um, more broadly, it's, an, it's, it's opiate dependency, but the majority of people that I work with would be people who use heroin. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a pretty full on job. Um, I manage a, case of about 45 patients in the community so they would all come and see me once a month and so you're you're locally based in one area and it's it's people with addiction problems from that area come to you yep, it's not precisely okay yeah so i up until last week i actually worked for the southern trust so i worked kind of locally to where i live uh dungannon armagh that kind of direction but i'm now just about to take up a new post in the city hospital in belfast okay so i start that on monday um so i'm in between at the minute but it's the same yeah. job just in a, in a new area so it'll be exactly the same thing just with a new group of people yeah okay. um, and they all come to me there's no like it's not like you know people that sleep in a hospital and sort of stay there for two or three weeks at a time um these are people that work and live and go to jobs and you know, do school runs, people doing everyday things in their lives, but they'll come and see me once a month in relation so that's, to That's addiction. quite interesting. I mean, this is quite a deep topic to, to jump straight into, but so you're saying a lot of these people with, I mean, heroin addiction is pretty terrible, as I understand. So you, you say a lot of them have quite normal lives and they're, and they're living with addiction. That's not always the image that we have. No, and that's that's where it gets really interesting. It's not the image that I had in my head before I, I yeah. started this job. Um, it's it, it's just so different to what I imagined it would be. It's in my head, I had this sort of vision of what a person that uses heroin is from mm -hmm. watching Train Spotting. If I'm yeah. being completely honest, because that's <laughs> where <Scottish>. most people. <laughs> You know, <clears throat> that's where most people get their kind of education on this type of stuff yeah. from. But yeah. when you start to get to know these people, you kind of break down that internal stigma that we all carry. Um, mm. You realize that these are just normal people trying to live normal lives who have this horrendous problem. And the problem isn't... <sighs> the problem isn't the problem. <laughs> it's, it's what okay. they use to cover up the problem. Um, and whenever you're working with people who are parenting and working and going to university and all these normal everyday things, this just throws such a complication, such a big complication into the mix. Yeah. And that's where we come in. You know, you're just trying to, to help people function with their day-to-day -day lives. Um, so could, what, what percentage of the people you're... Because well, I just want to talk about those those stereotypes just before because you move into what the work actually involves because uh i suppose we have in our heads the stereotype is that someone who's uh um addicted to heroin in general most of them are not in con you know not in con not don't live any kind of normal life at all mm -hmm. 
you know, we probably even think a lot of them are probably homeless. All these assumptions. What yeah. what percentage, what way would it break down? What percentage are in that really, I don't know, you want to call it a really, really desperate group compared to the ones who yeah. otherwise no, their um, lives seem normal? Um, that's a good question. Um, I, from my experience, yeah, 50-50. Whoa. Like that, that yeah. is, that is shocking. I mean, my assumption would have been you, it's probably 80% really, really, really serious, desperate, deprived cases. Yeah. And maybe, you know, 20%. That's crazy. So 50% of people struggling with this are, you know, otherwise just trying to live their lives normally. Yeah. Now the other sort of flip side of that is yeah. it's 50% of the people that are in treatment wanting help. Ah, okay. So this that changes things. brings the conversation around to yeah. who out there isn't asking for help. Yeah. There's, you know, that, that's, it's very hard to switch off once your eyes have been open to that world. Yeah, you, start to look at, you start to look at people walking down the street in a completely different light and thinking, you know, it, it's, it's so hard to switch off from it. Um, but I would say about 50% of the people in treatment that I see would be in in employment and parenting and driving and yeah all these things that we take for granted as as everyday sort of in, in inverted commons normal things to do um you soon realize that normal uh the word normal doesn't mean anything anymore in this world um and it's hard because the things that we the things that we would do in everyday normal life that we would maybe not struggle with yeah people with a heroin addiction would struggle with and there's there's so much more pressure on people say for instance having a child yeah you know the the instant one of my patients um becomes pregnant or their partner becomes pregnant you know within a matter of days you have social work and you know all sorts of involvement in just these you know these these things that they just need extra help with um I guess that's why we're here. That's that's our job is to help people navigate through these things, um, mm-hmm. and to keep people safe, to keep their families safe, to keep kids safe. Um, we, um, it, so you're, so it's almost. Is it is it less? You can correct me if I'm wrong. Is it less that you're trying to immediately break the addiction and more kind of lessen the effects of it on their lives and just help them to exist with it in a sense? Well harm reduction is the term that we use um, okay and it's th- there's two kind of categories that that people with sort of a heroin addiction would fall into in my eyes it's the the stably unstable people um and you know, they would be the, the type of people that would maybe not want to fully give up that lifestyle yet and would be slightly mm-hmm. more chaotic and maybe would be homeless but that's their baseline that's how they survive they've done it for years yeah that's what what that's that's their existence and then there's the other sort of side of that where people are trying to you know get away from that life and you know there's two very very different categories and we we do actually break them down into that in work um Mm -hmm. i know the new job i'm going to has a a specific team that would deal with people who are much more stable and are further down the road than maybe people who are just new to treatment would be um but it's it's such a chaotic world. You, it, I love there to be more light shone on this world in in terms of 
news reportings and the media and I just wish more yeah. people could see into it to to break down that stereotype that we all have and that we've all kind of grown up with from films and you know not to go back to it but train spotting um, yeah it's almost like it's almost like culturally we've created this narrative about addiction that makes most of us feel we're quite safe from it Oh, absolutely. You know, um, hap- you know, these are the kinds of people it happens to. It's not going to happen. Oh, it'll never happen to me. To me, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you'd mentioned earlier that um, about the addiction not being the problem, the problem something else. And maybe that, maybe that sheds a little bit of light onto how this can affect anybody. How do you, I don't know, I'm not sure what I call it, what you call it, I call it addiction stories or, or how, how do people find themselves in that kind of circumstance and does that vary uh between the people in those different different categories i mean how how do how do ordinary people find themselves in that in that situation (sighs) complex question a very complex question but a great question and one that i wished more people would ask um it ranges so so drastically from well, in fact, to go back even further, it all, 99.9% of it, I find all stems from trauma mm-hmm. of some description, whether that be, without going sort of too deep into it, you know, things like childhood trauma, and that can be anything. Um, yeah. There can be neglect or abuse, or it can be things like a car accident or an operation, and you get, because mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's not all just heroin, I mean, most of it is, but a lot of people that come into treatment for opiate addiction some of it stems from people abusing painkillers. Yeah. And okay. I do have a, you know, quite a substantial amount of people on my caseload that heroin, they've never touched heroin in their life. They've never injected drugs. They just, maybe they had an operation and mm-hmm. were prescribed, you know, morphine, yeah. tramadol, all these sorts of things. And that prescription just kept rolling after they were discharged and their body got so used to functioning on that baseline of a dose that once they stopped taking it, their body went into withdrawals and went, you know, hang on a wee second, where's that stuff gone that you were giving me? I like that. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, is that... um, I know you work work in the area, maybe, I don't know how if you'd want to say anything about this, but is that, in some ways, is that a, a failure of... I will call it a failure of the system to have measures in place to prevent that because it seems like an obvious problem. You give somebody an addictive substance to treat something yeah. for an extended period of time. What do you think is going to happen? I know. Um, it's, it's the million dollar question. I, yeah. There's so many different aspects to that. And, and when you have... You have to give pain relief. It would be equally you have to. You know, cruel to not. Yeah. But... <laughs> And therein lies the the big question. I mean, yeah. it's, I, I think where problems can come to light is when too many people get involved in treatment and you have maybe GPs taking on, carrying on treatment that was started yeah. in a hospital and, you know, you phone up at the end of every month and say, can I get my prescription renewed? Yeah. 99.9% of the time a GP is going to go, yeah, grand, you had an operation, there you go. Um, yeah. I suppose they don't have the... Do, maybe they don't have the, inform, the information that they could, could do with to allow them to make a more informed well, decision or 
again just... that's that's a brilliant question because that opens up um a whole other question about the system in northern ireland i worked yeah. in glasgow big city big population not going to try and guess the amount because i can't remember um, <laughs> and they had one health trust um for millions of people whereas in northern ireland we have five for a population got... of probably less than you know what's in glasgow and all those five health trusts don't talk to each other in terms of their systems. So if you go in for an operation in Ballymena and then you move to Newry, um, a lot of your information isn't going to get carried over. So it, there's just, there's so much room for improvement in how the systems in Northern Ireland work, especially when it comes to addictions. I mean, if I have a patient who goes to A&E for, say they're in a motorbike accident and they need to get pain relief, yeah, all the information that we have on them and their addiction doesn't necessarily get carried over to what the doctor Stanton and A and E will see because the systems aren't tied together. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, the population of Glasgow is half a million. The population of Northern Ireland is one point eight million. Now, <laughs> Greater Glasgow and Clyde is the name of the health trust, ah, so that'll okay. take into account all the outlying towns and everything. Um, so it's going to be close to a million. It's, or it's, more. it's huge. It's enormous. Um, I mean, I've, I've had instances where I've had doctors phone me from A&E going, I've got a patient of yours in here. Um, I'm going to give them morphine. Is that all right? And just all these alarm bells going off going, no, definitely not. Please don't. Um, wow. And it's, it's just because our systems don't talk to each other. Um, yeah. And it is, it is good to go back to your original question. It is, there's a failure of the system in Northern Ireland when it comes to addictions. I, I genuinely believe that. I think we're decades behind... Scotland and England and many other countries. Yeah. Okay, this got very deep very quickly. We'll um, we'll <laughs> move away from, <laughs> from the failures of systems in Northern Ireland, who, not that we're unfamiliar with uh, many of those. Um, and you're not going to ask just... you about RHI, are you? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll keep away from that one. Um, maybe just. Uh, uh, this is quite a deep section. Maybe I'll just ask you what what is the what is the solution? What is the pathway out? Is is there one pathway? Do you have like a model uh, that you can sort of follow, or is it completely different for for everybody? Portugal is the answer. Um, okay. In Portugal, I can't remember how many years ago it is now. Um, I'm going to guess around 10, I think it's around 2010, they decriminalized um, drugs. Yeah. So basically what that means is it, they took the focus off. Because um, a lot of the big problems arise is, is that kind of circle of people who use drugs uh, in order to fund buying drugs, they'll commit crime quite yeah. often, small insignificant crimes. And then they all kind of add up and add up. And they go into prison. They're in for two or three weeks a month. They're back out. Same thing happens. Back into prison. And it's just round and round and round. And when you look at it from a purely economical point of view, it's it's costing a lot of money to do that. But mm -hmm. in the in the sort of more humane sort of aspect of things, it's not good for the person. Um, yeah. They're never going to get anywhere if they're in that cycle. And breaking that cycle is tough. So the answer is, and this sounds drastic to so many people in Northern Ireland, but we need to legalise drugs and decriminalise it and make it a health issue as opposed to a criminal issue. 
Um, mm -hmm. We need to provide safe spaces for people to use drugs, which, mm -hmm. again, when somebody first mentioned that to me, my head exploded. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm um, trying to reserve my, my gut reactions to that. It's tough yeah. because we, it, it, it's, it's, when you when you say decriminalize, I just want to clarify. What do you mean by that? Is that dealing? Is that possession? Is that using everything? What what, what is decriminalized? Everything. So, Take away the power from people who sell drugs illegally. Okay. Because you instantly get that that just disappears when you legalize it. Yeah. Um, and when you so, focus so more on that, turning sort of turning that the dealing part of it in, essentially into an industry. Well. Or, yeah. or is it that the, that the government uh, controls that? It's yeah, it's socializing it. Um, okay. And, and like, at all, all levels of that, that, that's the part where I struggle with this: the idea that it could suddenly become legal for a shop to open up and start selling, you know, heroin on the high street. Well, here's the thing: you can get heroin in a hospital. It's a legal. It's a legal drug. Hmm. If you Google heroin, it'll yeah. you know give you all the proper okay. compound names of it and things. It's a, it's an anesthetic. Um, you know, it it's not this mystical, magical substance that you know appears in a bag in a shady street corner somewhere. Yeah, it, it is an actual substance that's used in hospitals for medicinal purposes. It's just that kind of black market that yeah the shady side of drug dealing. You you know, once you legalize drugs, you can control what's in them. You can control how they're sold and. There's a really interesting thing that happened in Glasgow a few days ago, actually. Um, there's a pilot scheme there where they have basically a big camper van that goes around the city and they offer a safe space for people to inject drugs. Um, Which sounds again, crazy. It does. But hear me out. Uh, <laughs> one of the big problems with injecting drug users is the spread of bloodborne viruses like mm. hepatitis, HIV. Sharing needles. Like Sharing needles sharing straws for cocaine, things like that. If you're in a stage of your life where you need to use drugs to function, and I'm not taking, I'm not talking about taking drugs to get high. I'm talking about when you're waking up in the morning, Yeah, you can't function without taking this substance to just give you a baseline level of normality to go and put your clothes on and wash. Yeah, so we're familiar with the idea of functioning alcoholics. This is the same thing, yeah, just a different it's drug. exactly the same thing. Um, and if you, if that is a need in your life at that time and you don't have access to clean needles, but you have access to somebody else who's needles in their house and you're sharing them. Yeah, you're going to use Bloodborne it. Bloodborne viruses will just, uh, and it does it in Belfast at the minute. There's, there's you know, not even just Belfast, the whole country. Bloodborne viruses are a huge problem. Um, so again, to go back to your question, <laughs> what's the pathway out of this? We need to have a more compassionate view of those that use drugs simple yeah. as that um and we need to offer better services um to, you know to deal with the physical aspects of it as well like bloodborne virus testing and offer clean needles and places where you can go and exchange your dirty needles for clean ones without judgment without stigma without concern about you know are yeah. the police going to catch me and that's where the decriminalization comes into it when you're offering safe compassionate care to people they're more likely, you know, <laughs> to take you up on it as opposed to, well, this is illegal. I'm afraid to ask for help. Yeah. What's going to happen to me? I, I suppose one big fear, I mean, that listening to that 
being said about existing addicts seems you know i can sort of see the logic in it um it's not something i've you know looked in hugely to myself i know that the gut reaction to it is just oh that you know but it, you explaining it it does make sense but i think the big question people have with that is if you take away uh, if you suddenly legalize it what's then the risk for creating new addicts if there's suddenly essentially a shop selling addiction yeah. uh, what well, happens then so are everyone's you not, addicted are you not to long something. Term? Okay. I, I I truly believe that everyone is addicted to something. It's just what we harbor that addiction towards is the problem. Yeah. Um, I mean, look at how alcohol sold. It's everywhere. Yeah. Or you're out today. You know, it's, it's in billboards. It's in every Tesco advert in the TV. Drinking is normal in this country, yet it kills more people than any other drug. <laughs> you know, it's good. It's a good point. Yeah. Alcohol is rife and the problem, sorry, the, the problems with alcohol is, you know, are rife. And once your eyes are open to just how accessible alcohol is in this country, and once you kind of see behind the curtain of how many people struggle with alcohol addiction, you can't help but just feel this overwhelming sadness of, oh my goodness, you have to look at this every day. You have to look at your problem every day. I mean, look at, there's pubs in every corner. There's alcohol in every corner shop. You imagine that's your addiction. Yeah. You can't get away from it. Yeah. So that it comes down, it, it comes back to compassion, empathy. Yeah. Like I yeah, said, everyone's addicted to something. Yeah. I suppose to go back to the to the drugs, my my I, I if I if I was to ask for a solution, and this is speaking to someone who has no experience and therefore is completely ignorant, <laughs> so you can take anything I say with a pinch of salt. I mean, my gut is, yeah, take that compassionate approach to the addicts, uh, but come down hard on the dealers and suppliers so that you sort of get the existing addicts managed, but mm-hmm. you're preventing new ones from popping up by basically you know, destroying the supply. Now, I, 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 having seen what has happened in America and in, you know, Mex- Mexico, where they've tried to take that approach shows that it hasn't necessarily worked. Yeah. Uh, you've got these crazy battles going on, but that's sort of... Breaking yeah. Bad style. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I've watched too much. I've seen too much, too much, yeah. breaking, too much breaking Bad. <laughs> but that's, yeah. but that's, but, but that's exactly the point is that is the majority of the population's education on this stuff yeah. is breaking bad and narcos and train spotting and yeah it almost glorifies the yeah well in, in one sense it doesn't i'm not gonna do any put any spoilers in here for anything <laughs> in one sense it doesn't but in another sense you are essentially turning this an industry that kills a lot of people into a form of entertainment uh oh absolutely there's no ifs or buts about it it, it just does um, it makes it look attractive in a certain sense because you think yeah. that looks exciting. But what you don't see is the reality of the people lying in bed at home struggling with it. Um, yeah. I think we just need more. <clears throat> excuse me. It it comes down to taking control of it. Um, like look, at, it's so difficult. <laughs> you could talk for days on this stuff. Um, so given kind of short, concise answers in this is tough, but I, like, I'll try my best. Um, 
I think we just need more awareness of it, more money and funding of it, and more services. Um, even within nursing and within doctors and that whole healthcare world, a lot of staff that you speak to don't want to work in addictions. Yep. They think it's chaotic. They think it's revolving door. They think it's, you know, these people don't want, they don't want help. Why would I? They find it quite draining and quite tiring. And it is challenging, but... Yeah. It must be, it must be a, a thankless job at times when you just see the same thing happen over and over again. Yeah, it can be, it can be tiring, but the success stories make it worth it. Mm. Um, when you see people come into yeah. treatment three years later, yeah, looking like a completely different person. And Without giving any you know details, can you give like any? Are you able to give any examples of of that? Yeah. Um, let me think. I have worked with several people um, over the past maybe three years that. <laughs> When I when I picture them in my head the day that they come in to us and mm. I see them now, yeah, they just look like different people, yeah. and the outward signs of you know they're well dressed, they're just healthy looking human beings that you'd walk past in the street and not pass any remarks about. Yeah, people that are I've I've patients who are starting university this year, oh. and. They must it's feel just, like your kids in a way, even you know, even though they're oh, obviously, absolutely. you know, maybe some of them are older than you. you. You get very, very. I mean, this specific aspect of of healthcare, you get so involved in these people's lives, yeah, because you're with them through everything. I mean, yeah. the, the kind of way I break it down to my patients is, and it's not just me. This is just the reality of it. Sometimes we are the only constant in these people's mm -hmm. lives. Yeah. When you, if you imagine us as the doctor, the nurse, as this straight line. Yeah. And stability. You've got this. You've got this wave line, um, going up and down and up and down and up and down, and that's the chaos, the overdoses, the deaths, the court cases, the arrests, the the financial struggles, all these things. And we're that constant line cutting through the middle of it, and they can rely on us every month. We're there. They can pick up the phone anytime in the middle of it all. And sometimes we are the only positive impact and the positive input in, in a person's life. Yeah. And once those peaks and troughs start to kind of get closer together and smaller, you know, it all starts to kind of come together. And even if things go chaotic again, we still remain the constant. And it's... Yeah, it's a lot, it's lot, of, <laughs> lot of responsibility, but it does sound like when you get those... It must be. It must be. Yeah, it must be an amazing feeling when you when you you know when you get somebody coming out the the other side of that, or you have a, a significant life event event or event occurs oh, that huge. you wouldn't have otherwise. I yeah. think for me, you know, out of say say an average, I have forty fifty people that I look after every month. Um, I maybe talk to them once a month for an yeah. hour, two hours, but everything they went through. You know, after I'm done with them, it's not like I completely switch off, but I go back to what I'm doing in my life and other patients and work and home and all the kind of normal things that I do in my life. But to them, they they can't switch off from that because that's their life. 
Yeah. And I think sometimes I know that I'm guilty of maybe underestimating the, the impact that the positive impact that we can have on people and they're going home you know taking away hopefully skills that we're helping them to use to cope better um when chaos does hit and it's it's you're going to be in recovery for the rest of your life is, is, is what i always tell people yeah. so it's, it's about one day at a time and, and realizing that this is a problem i have and every decision i make is going to impact you know what the rest of my life looks like yeah. um but it's a nice feeling when you know that you have had a little tiny influence in someone's life and yeah. and they're they're going to have somebody like if if not you there's going to be someone in your position sort of there for them for the rest of their lives essentially yeah absolutely um yeah. we're with these guys for the long haul um there's not many other services um would be with people for such a long period of time that we're potentially with these people to the day they die wow um and that can be, you know, premature or it can be of old yeah. age in a nursing home. Um, yeah. But it's, it, it always hits me really soberingly when a patient, and somebody said this to me a few weeks ago, I'd be dead if it wasn't for you. And wow. It's just like, wow. Oof. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that hits um, you. That hits you. Because I, I don't yeah. often, I, like, I don't think, like, I don't walk about the place with a mental cape on me thinking I'm saving people's lives every day it's it's my job I, I'm there to help people but but you whenever are. somebody says something like that you're just like Phew. brings it home wow oh it, it's uh, yeah I, I, I don't even know how to describe that it's it's just it's 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 just a thing that's good <laughs> <laughs> Chris we could talk about this 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 for ages like uh, like a, it's an amazing job you're doing. It really, really is. And you're right. Uh, we don't know about this enough. It's definitely not talked about. Yeah. Um, th these issues are just presented as sort of a dark, seedy thing that only affects a certain type of people. Um, yeah, we could and, talk and more about. That, that's it. That, I mean, I think I think one thing yeah. I was worried about coming into this was what am I going to talk about? I'm going <laughs> to have to prepare. You've, like you've talked slides. for uh, thirty-five minutes. So I, I think you, you, yeah. yeah. But I think what, what's hit yeah. me is just that maybe the general population don't know enough about this. And that's no, I think you're right. what to take away from this. Because um, I, I live in a bubble of where this is talked about, you know, every day. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you're right. It is something that needs to be talked about more. Yeah. Let's go back to the blue socks. Let's go back, <laughs> go back to the blue socks. Um <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we could talk about this all day, but let's let's go on slightly now to just a different topic, which is slightly related because I did want to. There's a couple of things I did want to get in. So I want to move on to, uh, like ma as massively important as your work at work is. We'll move on to some a few things, maybe slightly slightly more positive. But <laughs> before we do, let's discuss coronavirus uh, because oh, that's right. yeah, that's yeah, good because. Yeah, because we're only having this conversation, I think, because you sent me a message after I made a, a video about cor yes. coronavirus, coronavirus, uh, conspiracy, coronavirus, that's like, <laughs> uh, that's like a virus that causes conspiracies. <laughs> the coronavirus. Yeah. Coronavirus. Yeah, because you, you sort of messaged me because you you're feeling frustrated by the conspiracy theories or, or people denying it exists. So maybe yeah. rather than tackling those straight on, just maybe 
because I think it's good to get an image of what's actually happening on the inside. Just describe how, what, what is your experience of, of coronavirus, of the pandemic being in a medical uh, context? Okay. Um, what kind of just, a, you, just a disclaimer at the start. You'd said about, let's move on to something a bit more, maybe lighthearted. Um, well, in a minute or two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it's, it's not... Um, I've never experienced anything as stressful as I have done in this in my life. Yeah. It's, um, the, so I work in a hospital that deals with sort of mostly outpatients. So we don't have people that don't, people don't sleep in our hospital. It's all clinics, you know, people that come for, you know, appointments to see people nine to five, um, the majority of staff in our hospital just got pulled to go man the wards. Like literally the every COVID service. Wards. Yeah. Every service just got shut down. Um, so to kind of specifically talk more about the addiction service, there's about 40 staff employed in the addiction service, sort of 40 healthcare staff, doctors, nurses, social workers. And out of those 40 staff in our sort of unit, um, there's, I think, about six of us that work in the opiate substitution team. The six of us were the only people that didn't get redeployed. Um, so we were going to that hospital every day. Essentially, it, it was like a ghost town. Um, and the reason our service didn't get stepped down is because they thought, you know, if people's methadone scripts get pulled and all that get stopped, yeah, the overdose rates will just good. skyrocket. And rightly so. And then that part of your treatment when you're on opiate substitution is you go to the chemist every day um, for your supervised dose of methadone. Most people wouldn't get it home with them. So complications arise. What if you develop symptoms and you have to go to the chemist every day? What do you do? Um, oh, yeah. So, so they have to get we, it every... Is, is the reason they, they, they pick it up every day is so they don't have enough to overdose on? Precisely. It's, it's all about balance of risk. I mean, those that are more stable in treatment would get it home with them during the week in some shape or form, but that's consistently down the line. Yeah. But you take the majority of people, it's the baseline for treatment is every day you have to go to the chemist and a pharmacist has to stand over you in a little room and watch you take it. Because it's a controlled drug and it's very yeah. easy to overdose on it, um, especially with the stress that a pandemic is given to people. Um, you know, all the more important all the more important that it is that people are supervised. Um, but anyway, back to my point. Say you're a patient of mine and you phone me up and you say, Chris, I've got symptoms of COVID. I have to self-isolate for 14 days. What am I going to do? I can't get to the chemist. I don't live with anybody that can drive or they're self-isolating as well. Mm -hmm. So what that, we, and we've 200 patients. So <laughs> this began to escalate very, very quickly. Um, Basically, we had to start doing home deliveries to patients every day who were self-isolating. And that takes two staff going in a separate car to every patient who's doing that. Um, wow. And the numbers just began to escalate more and more and more. You imagine we've got 20 patients all over the Southern Trust, as north as like Dungannon and as south as, I think like Kilkeel, as, as far south as we go. Yeah. And then if you just phone me up and say, I've got symptoms, I have to stay in the house for two weeks. 
we have to go to your house every day for two weeks. Two staff, two cars. That is crazy. When so the numbers sleep? just began to to just multiply and it got to the stage where and it got to the stage where there was kind of around March, April time staff were just having to have a bit of a cry and work yeah. in the middle of the corridor to just cope because it just got so stressful and patients were now getting admitted to hospital with COVID and people yeah. were dying and it was horrendous and it was a very real thing. I mean, in the basement of our hospital is a Nightingale hospital that is now filled with about 200 beds mm-hmm. to basically cope with if and yeah. when this ever spills over. Um, so going to work every day on, in, in an empty street to an empty hospital, just not knowing what the day was going to throw at you was horrendous. It was one of the worst experiences of my life professionally. Um, yeah never experienced stress like it um and it was just it got normal where you just see someone in a little room having a cry to just cope and that when you're faced with that in front of you and you're dealing with people floating about these conspiracy theory ideas about how covid's not real yeah it was a real kick in the teeth to the people that i work with yeah who are putting themselves out there every day when everybody else was told to stay at home. It yeah. was hard. And that's where it made me angry because I have friends and relatives who work in who work in the health service. And I mean, I, I've had people tell me that I'm probably being lied to by my relatives, by my friends who are medical professionals because they all know it's fake and they're lying to me. It's yeah. insane. And th- 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 there's this idea that medical professionals you are all you're all too scared to say anything it's ah oh, that 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 made, that made me mad because it's like well that's that's what like that's what i liked about your video is that in order for this to be a conspiracy yeah everyone's gonna have to be in on it every doctor every nurse every politician every yeah. potential politician as well because if there's a new election comes along all the current politicians are gonna have to tell the new ones coming in by the way by the way this is, going this is real <laughs> here's the here's the guidebook Knock yourself out. So is Robin Swan going to, you know, hand over the torch to the next person coming along saying, right, here's the guidelines for how to keep this conspiracy going. I mean, catch yourself on. Yeah, <sighs> it's, it's just, I mean, I can, yeah, I, I, I can understand what, uh, sort of why, well, why the conspiracy theories are kind of coming up. But but the, just the extent of them, and the, if you go down the rabbit hole of how far these people are going, and it, yeah. to be honest, it, it was the point at which I realised that they think that my friends and family are lying to me. That I was just like, no, no, that that's where the credibility right. ends. I mean, I, I have uh, you know cousins, doctors, nurses, and some of them were you know literally scared for their lives to go it go into work, and yeah. the idea that they're making that up because they will say not everybody needs to be in on it just enough need to be in on it but the people who 100% need to be in on it are the ones on the COVID wards because they're the ones that know <laughs> yeah. if it's real or not because they're seeing it and they're the ones that are scared for their you know for their lives I mean, and the idea the that doctors and nurses that have died already yeah I mean <sighs> gonna have to keep my my heart rate in check it gets me very very angry um, yeah but that's the reason I liked your video so much is because it just hit the nail on the head of how 
it was it took an objective view of well look if this conspiracy theory is real this is what needs to happen and this is what needs to be in line to enable it to continue and I mean objectively looking at it and taking a step back I think that's impossible to navigate and to make happen um <laughs> yeah I'm glad you brought this up because it's reminded me of what we sort of originally talked about was I get why people are making these conspiracy theories up there's there's a comfort in giving yourself a bit of control over it um yeah you you talked about talk about that talk about the effect yeah what what because we got these restrictions and lack of control mm. and thing things about that we'd message to, yeah talk about that so it, it it brings it back to people that have experienced trauma in their life um no matter to what extent everyone likes to be in control yeah. Um, and just to clarify, Chris knows what he's talking about. <laughs> he's not, I'm not he's lying not, either. You're not, you're not, you're, yeah, you're not, you're not uh, somebody off Facebook spreading your opinion. You're a trained <laughs> medical professional specializing in, in, um, what's, give me, let's, let's get your qualifications out there just because, so people know you're not just, you know, giving your own, your own, uh, your own opinion. I went to the University of Facebook um, <laughs> with a doctorate in Google searching. <laughs> Um, I. This is not helping I'm your a, case. I am a trained psychiatric nurse, um, and I specialize in addictions. So yeah. I do this and for a living. You did. You you worked. Did you work in vir- virology at some point? Are you re- so, researching well, that? So a part of a big part of our job. Um, it. it to go way back to what we talked about a couple of hours ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> bloodborne viruses. Um, a lot of our job, I do a lot of testing in terms of virology testing for patients. So we work very closely with the virology labs in Belfast um, with regards to the testing and, you know, interpreting test results for our patients. So virology is a big part of our job and understanding, you know, what that whole, I don't want to go down too far, but that whole world is something that we need to have a good working knowledge of. Um, so when it comes to talking about a virus, it's it's something that I talk about every day and work for a living. It's stuff that we need to know to do our job. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So but you, that's, but yeah, so, I, yeah. so I'd, I'd like to, th- yeah, you know what, you know what you're talking about. That's, that, that's fine. So, Tell me then why... I don't like saying those words myself. I know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. I'd like okay. to think that I know what I'm talking about. Um, okay, that's, that's, that's good because that's... Uh, yeah, that's a more scientific approach, I think. <laughs> and what it, yeah. what, it com- what it comes back to in my mind and, and what kind of... I'll be yeah, honest what? with you, what has helped me cope with the conspiracy theorists is... Yeah taking a more empathetic view on why they hold these views. Um, Do you see them almost as, as um, patients or her, you know, the sufferers? Oh, everyone's, su- every, I, I psychoanalyze everyone. Everybody? Oh, no. Yep, I'm doing it right now. Oh, no. You're, yeah. Right, I'm leaving. <laughs> okay, so let's... let's, 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 let's so how does that stop, make you feel? Stop, uh, let's stop analyzing me and go on to why, <laughs> why people uh, believe in conspiracy theories. That's, uh, so... In my opinion, um, somebody that has suffered some varying amount of trauma in their life, whether that be something large, something small, it's all significant and it all contributes to our own, you know, psychological makeup. 
And when certain things happen in our lives that cause us trauma, one of the responses that we come back with is we like to be in control. It's human nature. Um, Because the trauma has taken away that control. Yeah. So if you've had that control taken away from you in some life event, you're going to want to try and regain some control. And that's perfectly normal. It's perfectly understandable. And a lot of that time, that control can be harmless to others. It's just your routine, your ways, your wee idiosyncrasies of how you like to do things in your life. Yeah. Your beliefs, everything. Um, Now, there's some conspiracy theories are harmless and some kind of coping mechanisms are harmless. And again, that's fine. But the thing about coronavirus, um, say you've had some kind of trauma in your life and you're trying to regain control and you like to do things a certain way. What the restrictions have done is they've told everyone, you're not allowed to do this. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to go here unless you do this. You can't travel here and you have to do X, Y, and Z if you want to go to the shops. You know, yeah. it's it's very regimented and it's it's taken almost, you know, it's taken entirely... I'm going to put this. It's taken control of your life, basically, and told you you have to do things this way because we say so. The pandemic has traumatized us. Is that what what you'd say, Um, in a a sense? I would say there's probably a a certain proportion of the population that this has made them feel uncomfortable in terms of, um, I wouldn't go as far as PTSD, but like people that... But there are some people are incredibly incredibly scared and incredibly yeah. cautious but i would know I, I would know some people would fall into that it's frightening that category I know, I think... where they're, they're obs- sort of every time every time there's figures announced they would have quite a strong reaction yeah. and, and and fear and yeah i mean when it comes back to when it comes back to that lack of control if you need to have control of things in your life in order to function um which we all do to a certain degree when you've had that taken away from you a lot of people are trying to assert their control over a situation where they've had control taken away from them. So when you talk about things like, you know, saying it's a hoax, people using the word scamdemic, plandemic, thinking it's, you know, some higher new world order is making all this happen. Um, people that would be maybe anti-mask, you know, th- that type of stuff. Yeah. It's them asserting their control over a situation where control has been taken away from them. And in normal circumstances, you know, wanting to assert your control over a situation because it makes you feel uncomfortable wouldn't be dangerous to other people. You would just maybe want to do things your own way. But in this scenario, it's incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Um, so so um, is there... Is there so could you say that for someone who then adopts the conspiracy theory, that sort of restores a sense of equilibrium in their in their life or oh, in their absolutely. mind and makes them feel a lot better? And once they feel better, that, that reinforces that this must be right? Yeah, it's okay. <clears throat> absolutely nail on the head. Um, in order to restore balance in my life, I need to be in control. Um, so I'm going to assert these illogical views. <laughs> um, it, because some of it does defy logic, in my opinion. Um, some people saying that masks don't work. I mean... Yeah, and that's because, I mean, uh, 
But it's because people <laughs> make graphics that show the the reason. I think the number one reason I see people say that masks don't work is because viruses are so small they get through the the holes. Yeah. But that seems to be a lack of well, you know, medical knowledge. Let's talk about cheese. Um, cheese. I like cheese. Yeah. Swiss cheese. Yeah. To be specific. Um, picture a block of Swiss cheese and slice it into loads of different slices. Yep. Um, picture it right now. It's melting on bread. Should I have grilled it? No, no, no. Don't grill it. <laughs> okay. Um, just a slice. <laughs> slice. So take 10 slices of Swiss cheese. Now take 10 slices from different locations in a block. Ah, I see where you're going with this. Now, if you look, um, if you set all these slices of Swiss cheese in a row yeah, and take a big long stick of spaghetti. What do you call those bits of spaghetti? The big long ones. A piece of spaghetti. Um, just spaghetti. A piece. <laughs> just one of those things. Or a stick. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, imagine what you're holding in your hand is the virus. Yeah. And each piece of Swiss cheese is uh, something that we are doing to try and control this virus. Yeah. Whether it be wearing a mask, cleaning your hands, um, yeah. blah, 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 all that stuff. Now, the piece of spaghetti or the stick might get through. <laughs> I don't know why it's a piece of spaghetti. Um, <laughs> it might get through the first hole. Yeah. But all those holes and all those 10 pieces of Swiss cheese aren't going to be lined up. Yeah. So if each one of these pieces of Swiss cheese is um, a measure that we're putting in place, yeah, even eventually. if it gets bypassed one, maybe maybe the holes might line up, it might get past two. Yeah. But it's not going to get through all 10. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think this is what people don't get about the, about the measures. It's they're, they're not individually... Not foolproof. The, the solution, yeah, they're all individually reducing the odds. Yeah, and that's, and that, that's and exactly that what it comes down to is, is yeah. yes, this isn't a foolproof measure, this isn't a foolproof measure, but when you put them all together, you're significantly reducing the odds of passing the virus on to somebody that might die from it. Yeah. Simple as that. So cheese. Yeah. Cheese, yeah. Cheese Which is why spaghetti. I suppose even when some of the restrictions don't make sense they don't make sense because they're part of a bigger picture like you take things yeah. in isolation where you can't meet somebody at home but you can meet them but well, you can't at the minute but um <laughs> when we're, when we're able to again you can meet in a cafe yeah and people you know how come i can't visit somebody at home when i can go out for a coffee it's not about you know one being more effective than the other it's about you know it's about just reduce, reducing the odds overall while balancing i suppose the demands of keeping some kind of the economy going on, you know, and everything else. And then Absolutely. A layer of politics involved as well, let's, let's be honest. Yeah. I, and don't get me wrong, I'm the first person to question and criticise some of the decisions that have been made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, some of the stuff to me is very, very frustrating. Yeah. But I just have to accept that, well, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm glad I'm not the one making those decisions. No, it I, it's, it's tough. Um, and I think w w another one of the things that I liked about your video was you kind of made this either or scenario. It's, it's like, you know, is this all the result of a big conspiracy or is this just, you know, human beings trying to navigate this as best they can and yeah. changing with the evidence and trying, trying to get through this? Yeah. Yeah. There probably is a little <laughs> bit in, 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 in between there, but probably, yeah. 
it's not easy and in our generation and like the kind of this generation that's grown up with technology and access to information where yeah. we've never been so informed that's and a good point informed at the yeah. same time yeah we're so used to being able to find the answer to anything like like that yeah and that's the thing a google search is not scientific research what you know <laughs> really <laughs> you know even if you go onto the second page of google that's still not considered research and let's face it not many of us do um you know, research yeah. is an art form. It's a science. It's something that people study for yeah. years and decades. Um, just because you yeah. find an article on Facebook that matches up with your views. That, uh. Okay. <laughs> right. Let's, I think we've, t- we've talked a lot about conspiracies and coronavirus and yeah, we could, we could go on for ages, but let, we're, uh, we're running up to the R, so I think what we'll do is we'll move on. Um, and if people if, if people come in and respond and say they want to hear more individually about some of these topics, well, maybe I can make, you know, we can have another conversation about something more specific. So yeah, if you want to hear more specific, or you have que- you take questions perhaps in a future podcast, how about that? Oh yeah. Okay, Chris is up for questions. If you've yeah. got questions for Absolutely. Chris, uh, you can annoy me on Instagram, that's Stephen J. Reid, or you can email into people I met on the internet at gmail.com. And if we get lots of questions, I'll get Chris back in. We can answer some of those specifically. But let's move on slightly. We'll finish on a little bit of a more positive note because. Um, <laughs> I came across you on Instagram and I noticed you're into your photography and you also have a very, very nice camper van. So let's, let, let's talk about I that. Do. What does, what does photography mean to you? Um, it's, oh, it's, it's an escape, if I'm being mm-hmm. honest, from work. It's what it started out as. Um, I mean, I've always been, I've always had a camera in my hand. Um, from the age of about sort of 16. Um, I've always liked taking photographs, but I've never been a photographer, so to speak. Yeah. Um, there, there's a definite, uh, there's a journey that everyone goes through um, before I think they can confidently call themselves a, a photographer as opposed to, oh, I've got a camera. Um, it gets me outside and it gets me outdoors and up mountains. And it's just my way of, getting out of the house yeah um yeah it's I, I don't do it for a living um it's an excuse it's it's, a, it's an excuse to go outside and take pictures sometimes as of people sometimes they pay me money for it and that's fine um it's always good i i do it regardless it's um i studied music before i did nursing and uh. that kind of creative part of my brain mm-hmm. needs fed in some shape or form um yeah. Whether that's through music photography, it's it's just a creative outlet, um, yeah. which it is for a lot of people. Yeah, um, I mean, I would I would know several people have jobs that you that are I don't want to say not creative, but you would probably you know you probably wouldn't put them in that bracket, and they're you know they're really really good photographers or artists or yeah, it's it's and it's a, I think it's a shame, especially at a time when um those things are a therapy for people. Absolutely. It's what we're, everything's art. Everything we look at and touch and use and wear is art and politicians should be valuing that more, but we're not going to go down that route. No, um, no. Maybe you should re- retrain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Oh yeah, well not not yeah, not good down no, that. No. But a full stop there. Um it's yeah, it's therapy for me as well. Um it's yep. just I just really enjoy it. Um, so it's, it's it's outdoors, it's landscapes, it's I see you've got a nice uh, photograph of what is that? Is that a deer? Yeah, I mean I it's part of the reason I got a camper van as well. Um I just love being outdoors, love being up mountains. Um it's even better when your phone signal disappears and you kinda <laughs> Yep, no notifications for ours. Oh it's bliss. Um do you know I was never massively into the outdoors until I bought a camera. Yeah. Um and then Googled where to take photographs in Northern Ireland. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> and saw lots of pictures of the Morns and I was like, I've heard of the Morns. How do you get to the Morns? Um yeah. And we have a caravan in Newcastle that I've been going to for years. And, and you would never, never been up in the mountains? No, because it was just never something that I was right drawn towards. Right behind you, yeah. Because um, my eyes weren't open to it. But then as soon as you've got this sort of creative outlet, you start looking at things in a different light. Um, and I was like, oh, wow, those are class looking. I must go for a walk up there someday. And the first ever time I went up the Morns a couple of years ago, um, totally unprepared, didn't know what I was doing, went up in an old pair of work boots and uh, had the feet cut off me by the time I got up to the top. <laughs> Just um, for anyone who isn't sure, the Morns are the Morn Mountains in Northern Ireland, are largest but still quite small, but nice, compact and beautiful mountain range. They're lovely. They're um, lovely. But yeah, it, and then it just sort of spiraled from there. I was like, I'm going to buy a camera. And then I bought a camera. Um, and buy? it's just... So my first ever camera um, was my first DSLR camera, should I say, yeah. um, was a 1300D, uh, the Canon kind of entry level one. Yeah. So I bought that with a 50mm lens and the kit lens. Nifty and 50. And then I bought the Nifty 50, the plastic, fantastic. Yeah. Um, the, the one that sounds like a train when you're, when it's auto focusing. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it opened up a whole new world to me and I was like, this is really fun. And I think I bought a, a Sigma... 10 to bear in mind this is on a an APS-C I'm gonna guess camera. it was the Sigma 10 to 20 f yep. 3.5 to 5.6 that's exactly it boom um, I used to sell loads of those <laughs> and do you know it was just a really good gateway into yeah what's a wide angle lens yeah what's a portrait lens and then yeah. a year later I thought quite fancy something a bit more um professional um and I'm not often one for kind of doing the journey of buying this camera and then this one and then this one I'm like right what's what's the best one I can get for the money I have so I went and bought yep. a 5D nice um, and just bought a few lenses and haven't looked back um, yeah. it's great it's it's just something nice somebody asked me the other day how often you go out taking photographs every day every day you know, wow okay because yeah. yeah I mean I get asked you know people think I, I go running every day or I do I, I, <laughs> like it's it's not as what, much you mean you as don't? people think no I really I really really you're don't. not running at the minute. I'm going to picture a video of this of you running with a <laughs> a GoPro and a stick somewhere. Yeah, I'm not half as much as, as as people think I am. But you go out every day. That's that's amazing. Well, you live, it's you not, live in the perfect area for it. I, it's not that I would go out up a mountain every day, but yeah. I'll try and shoot something every day. Yeah. So the yeah. camera's always in the... For instance, those pictures of the deer that you saw on my Instagram. Um, yeah. I think I know I where that is. Is that the deer farm? It's not that. It's just a road up by Gorchen Glen. Well, it's the, it's the, okay. it's the road out of it. Is it yeah. Gorton or Gorchen? Oh, that's a good debate. Um, because 
I thought it was Gorton, and then somebody from there said Gorchin. So it seems to be from the Gorch. Yeah, the sound. Gorchin Glen. Gorchin, that place. Um, yeah. So that's. I was actually just in the car, driving, and I had the seventy two hundred on you the camera dear. sitting in. It was. It was on the in the passenger seat. Yeah. So, I put the car into neutral, and kind of coasted down this road. Huh. With the windows down, because they'll jump that. even with the windows. Like when yeah. you hit the electric windows, they'll just bolt. So I just wound down the windows and just coasted really gently down. It was like a, you know, it was like having a, what's the name of those drive things you put cameras on <laughs> with the wheels? As a drive-by shooting of a deer. <laughs> and then these guys come up behind me and started beeping the horn and get out of the way and the deer all ran off. But it's uh, just that the camera's always with me. Um, yeah. There's always something to shoot. Um, I mean, people sort of think I live in the mountains sometimes. Mm-hmm. I really don't. I go to work and I come home and I make dinner. Um, but I try and go out as much as I can on kind of big adventures. But the camera's always with me because you just don't know what you're... You know, I'd rather have it and not need it than sort of need it and not have it. Yeah. Yeah. I ha- I know you, I have done that trick of I had a, a, a project where I had to go and shoot lots of landscapes and I did shoot a lot of them just out the window because it was so tight, so tight for time. It's, yeah, it's a strange one. You're sort of leaning over, hanging out the passenger seat, but the car's still moving. Hoping, um, hoping nobody comes beh- comes behind you. Don't do it. You definitely don't do it on a, on a, on a bit. Actually, it's probably illegal. Don't do it in the M1. Don't do it in the, don't, definitely don't do it in the M1. <laughs> don't yeah. do a drive-by shooting in the M1. Yeah. With a camera. Yeah. Just, with, well, just, with just anything. to clarify. With an, yeah, with anything. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. So, yeah, um, so photog- photography is a release and escape. Uh, it's just you. fun and it's yeah yeah like i mean that's I, I tend not to overcomplicate things it's just fun i love the whole process of mm. shooting things and editing them and then looking at them and it's a nice way to document you know your life as well yeah yeah you flick, it's just flick good. back through I just love your it. feed and because every picture that i post is a story to me yeah the same with the pictures that you post. It's a story to you. It's what yeah. it's where you were. It's who you were with. Yeah. Um, I have a terrible for memory. For me, it's 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 an overflow of what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a whole other podcast, but yes. um it's all about the experience and doing stuff. And having a camera is just it, it reinforces that sort of want to do things and to do things with people and go places and and sort of be active and actually go and do something. Yeah. Um, it's I love the whole, the, just the whole process of it. I just love it. it it's changed my life buying a camera. Yeah, but I know. I mean, uh, I've known people who. I mean, you're you're driven sort of to the outdoors by the photography, and that's been a. You would say that's that's therapy essentially. Yeah, and I know people who, uh, and your photography is mostly out, outdoors, nature, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't yeah. take much inside. Yeah. There's definitely an escape outside. I know I know people who genuinely say that the outdoors saved their lives. You know, that sort of goes back to to your work. The amount of people that can be, I mean, you can maybe say more about this, but the amount of people that are helped sort of from a mental health point of view by just getting outdoors seems to be oh, absolutely. It just seems to work um, so well. I think there's a lot to be said for getting outside and focusing on something bigger than yourself. Yeah. Um, it just comes down to the whole kind of mindfulness thing of being aware of where you are, your kind of your role in the whole thing, and sort of 
how insignificant we all are compared to the big bad world. And uh, that, that might sound like a bad thing, but for me, it's actually a really liberating thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of reminds know. me yeah, of how I, small I, I am. Yeah. yeah, I find the idea that I'm kind of small and not in control of everything freeing in a, in a way. Oh yeah, it's great. You stand there. Out it's in all the chaos, and we're just trying to make sense Listen. of it as best we can. <laughs> but um, I've recently taken up swimming, outdoor uh, swimming, um, outdoor, outdoor swimming. Yeah, as in going and yeah, jumping. Well, you know those mad ones you see jumping into the sea. Yeah, in I've November. started that. Um, um, yeah, in a wetsuit or are you like hardcore? No, no, your skin? just just jumping in the shorts. Oh, it's brutal, but yeah. it's 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 one of the best feelings that you can get for free outdoors. Jumping in I freezing think, cold yeah. water. Yeah. It's, it's awful. See that first couple of <laughs> seconds, you're like, I yeah. just, just, just suck me up earth. It just, just, just swallow me whole. I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. Um, I once you kind of get over that, it's, yeah. it's great. Yeah. Once, I mean, I, okay, I've been in the sea once this year, but I've been in a wetsuit and it was cold at the start. Once you're just, you're just in and cold. But I do, I do have a friend who would very much disagree with you because a number of years ago we were camping near a river and we decided to go into it the next day and we didn't have wetsuits or anything. And he turned blue, actually turned blue <laughs> and started, looked like he was going to die and had to get out of the river. So, well, the thing about going into the sea is you can keep moving. Because there's a space to swim, so it keeps yeah. your body heat up. If you're just warmer in the river, river, the sea, I think, would be warmer than a river as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Shimna River through Tullymore, somewhere I want to go for a swim, but I dipped my it's foot icy. in it the other day. It and is it's icy, awful. It's, yeah. I, I'm sort of starting to, I'm starting to reconsider my my decision <laughs> here in this one. Um, I, I would go in up to my, like just about sort of short my, to my thighs. If I've done a run in the mountains, I'll go in and just stand there. I love just standing, letting the legs cool off in in, in the river. But but, but, this, but again, swimming—it's—it's it's another excuse to get outside. Um, yeah, and it's an—it's—it's it's great for your mental health as well. Um, yeah. it's not going to cure a mental illness, but it gives you that bit of breathing space inside your head, and that's what the outdoors mm. is. And the camera is just sort of an extension of that whole thing. Um, yeah, you know there is purpose behind it all, and it's just—it's just fun. Yeah. Okay, Chris, if. People want to see some of your photographs. Where could they find them? Um, so Instagram's a place that I sort of would mostly use. Um, my handle, is that what they're called? Handles, that shows handle. how up I am in this stuff. Uh, Bre- Chris Breaker, Neil Breaker. McKay. Uh, so just Chris Neil McKay or Mackay, depending on where you're from. Um, yeah. Mackay, I don't know. How do you say it? I know both. I know McKay's and Mackay's. Yeah, Google it. Uh, Chris Neil, it's so... I would say McKay, but I lived in Scotland for 10 years. So whenever I speak to somebody on the phone, um, I sort of slip back into that. But Instagram's where I would share most of my work. Um, yeah. Chris Neil McKay. Uh, Mac- oh, there you go again. It's automatic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's another podcast that I had to pronounce. I had to pronounce sort of uh, Scottish slash Irish names. <laughs> yeah. I just, that's... The, that's where I post the majority of stuff. Facebook, yeah, there's, I've got a Facebook, but I don't really use it. Yeah, Instagram. We'll send, we'll, we'll send we'll send them the Instagram. <laughs> Look, Chris, I think I think we'll 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 finish it up there. We talked about absolutely lots on We've here. Definitely, yeah, it was more maybe more serious than I thought, but actually that's a, that's a good thing because these are really 
major issues. Um, So thanks very much for coming on and talking to me. As I've said, if anyone has any uh, questions for Chris, feel free to. You can message me on Instagram, Stephen J. Reid. Just send me a DM. Or you can email at met on the internet. People I met on the internet at gmail.com. But uh, Chris, thanks very much for chatting to you. That was absolutely fascinating. And maybe you'll be back in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been great. Finished on a slightly more positive note there with Chris. But yeah, really deep, serious discussion. That was uh, definitely a little bit more deep than I was first expecting when I messaged Chris and asked if he'd be willing to chat. So Chris, thank you very much. I feel like we... Uh, I feel like you bared your soul a little bit there in that conversation, so thanks for coming along. And as I said, if anyone has any questions for Chris that he might potentially answer in a future episode, email in at people I met on the internet at gmail.com. Just in case you're wondering who exactly I am, well, I'm a commercial filmmaker from Northern Ireland, uh, and I also run a YouTube channel where I make videos about running, technology, and the outdoors. If you want to check that out, that's YouTube dot com forward slash Stephen J Reid. Uh, my my commercial work and my YouTube channel is kind of the reason why this podcast started. I just had this opportunity to meet so many interesting people, either clients that I that I did video projects for, or just people that I came across on social media. That I thought, well, you know, I want to have conversations with this people, these people, and might as well share them with the rest of the world. So. Hope you find this interesting. Hopefully you'll come back and listen to future episodes. Subscribe on all of the podcast apps if you haven't already. I'm using Anchor to distribute this podcast, so it's on all kinds of platforms, including Spotify, Google, and whatever else Anchor goes out on. Probably should have looked into that. But yeah, once again, thanks for listening. Hopefully you'll be back. Bye-bye. So yeah, you had to do like a three, two, one clap. <laughs> Well, it'll be a one. Two, so, is it going to be a one, two, three clap or one, two clap? Uh, let's do a three, two, one gap. You know, three, two, one clap, and on the zero clap, it'll be a ahead of the table. I suppose to clap, so I'll drop the phone. Yeah, that's that's fine. Okay, so that's, okay. So, or do you want me to, three, do you want to drop the phone what? for effect? If you want, you can drop your phone. It's like on its. Oh no! Don't drop the phone because then no. you end up breaking your phone, and then we'll be in trouble. Right, so go for it. Okay, three, two, one. There was a there significant go. delay there <laughs> with yours coming through. <laughs> right. Uh.